As we are going to begin to see in our journey through the Gospel of John, there's going to be many, many similar threads and themes. As we are on this journey through the Gospel of John, there's going to be signs and signposts. We're going to witness how, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John wrote this magnificent Gospel, this biography of Jesus, with a definite system in mind, with intentional boundaries and bookmarks, with different things to point to Jesus, to reveal Jesus, to explain Jesus, and ultimately to magnify Jesus. One of those themes and threads are the seven I am statements of the Gospel of John. Another theme and thread are the seven signs or seven miracles in the Gospel of John. And oftentimes, friends, those signs accompany the revelation of Christ's identity. Those miracles are to attest to the message of the Messiah. That what we see, for example, here in John chapter 2 at the first miracle Jesus performed in his public ministry, this is a significant sign. This is very, very important. It's filled with not only practical interest, it is filled with all kinds of theological glory that truly does change, shape, deepen our understanding of who this central person is, the person Of Jesus Christ. So we come here in John chapter 2 and we are told a story about Jesus attending a wedding. Not only are the I am statements, the seven signs, certain threads throughout the Gospel of John, but there's also bookmarks in the whole Bible. This is not the first wedding you've seen in the Bible. In fact, no, we've seen dozens and dozens of weddings and the Bible begins with the wedding. Our first parents, Adam, the Lord brings his bride made from his side to him and they become one flesh. You see, in the beginning of the Bible, we see creation. And at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see new creation. In the beginning of the Bible, we see a tree of life. At the end of the Bible, we also see the same tree of life. At the beginning of the Bible, we see love. We see love. God has brought his chosen bride for his child, Adam, so that they could be united in marriage for the rest of their lives. But when we get to the book of Revelation, we do see a wedding. We do see a wedding reception. In fact, we see a glorious wedding banquet. Now, it's not between two people. It's not between Adam and his bride. It's not between a king and a queen. It's not between a prophet and his princess. No, it's between Jesus Christ and his church. Jesus Christ, his beloved. Jesus Christ and his bride. So even as we study the wedding at Cana, It is not only going to hearken us back to the first wedding between Adam and Eve, but it's also going to foreshadow 
and look forward to that great day where we are in Christ's presence, where he's drinking the fruit of the vine anew with us. He's wiped away every tear. There's nothing but everlasting joy forever and ever. Hallelujah. It's here at this kind of middle place in your Bible, the Gospel of John, that we, are, we hear the story of the wedding at Cana. We hear a story about how Jesus performed a miracle, and it would seem that he was reluctant at first. But in the sovereignty of God, we know that this happened for a specific reason, not only for his disciples, as we will see, but also for those who would believe in him today. So as we see Jesus turn water into wine, as we see Jesus engage with his mother, as we try to understand what the Bible talks about when we see a foreshadow of the great wedding feast of the Lamb, we know in the end what the purpose of this passage is. We don't have to guess. The Apostle John has told us. So let's jump from verse 1 all the way down to verse 11 and spoiler alert, John tells us exactly why this miracle happened. It says here in John chapter 2, verse 11, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And what does it say, friends? Manifested his glory. And then what? His disciples believed in him. Something special is going to happen here where everyone is going to witness the glory of Christ not only witness the glory of Christ, but his followers, his disciples, will believe in him as their Messiah. It's at the wedding of Cana where Jesus turns water into wine to keep the wedding going that their eyes are open to the identity of who this prophet and Messiah truly is. So let's look at the passage, shall we? Verse 1, John chapter 2. I want you to take note of the first four words of this passage because it is not by accident. It is significant, and we will return to it at the end. John chapter 2, verse 1. What does it say, friends? On the what? Third day. Third day. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Verse 5, his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you to do. I love this interchange between Jesus and his mommy. I love this discussion. This is so insightful. Jesus grew up in a real family. Do we get that? Jesus grew up not only with a real mother, but as it says here in verse 12, with brothers. It says here in verse 12, after this, he went to, down to Capernaum and his mother and what? His brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So we get insight not only into Jesus's relationship with his mother, Mary, but also Jesus's power. So here we are, we're at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Now, many of us are familiar with weddings. Weddings are not only an important biblical theological term, but they are a constant reality for many of us. 
Many of us, if not all of us, have been to a wedding, remember weddings. Some of us love weddings. Some of us are planning for weddings even right now. And we know that weddings are one of the most joyful days of our whole lives. But even as weddings are joyful, they're also full of things that can rob us of our joy. Even though weddings are a time where we celebrate love and we celebrate the union of two people, weddings can also bring out a lot of emotions that aren't love and also can divide people, right? It's not by accident that even at this wedding, there's a little bit of drama. There's a little bit of a crisis. There's a little bit of a problem. Now, in the ancient Near East, weddings were not just a one-day event. Weddings were longer and lengthier than our weddings. They probably didn't cost the same amount as our weddings today. But the whole town would come out and celebrate. The whole town would celebrate for seven days, an entire week, celebrating the union of man and wife. Not only that, but there was all kinds of expectations on the host. There was all kinds of expectations on the master of the banquet. In fact, in an honor and shame society, as is typical in Eastern cultures, we're a very individualistic society here in America and here in the West. If the master, if the host is not a good host, if he does not show true hospitality, and what does that equate to? If he doesn't keep the wine flowing, it's very embarrassing. Not only embarrassing, but this is true. There were even legal stipulations that required the father of the bride to continue to offer wine. He could get sued if the wine runs out. True story, right? You thought there was pressure on your wedding. So here's the crisis, and you know, we don't know too much about Mary's personality, but Mary jumps in and she wants to help, uh, help the situation. So there weren't liquor stores, there weren't wine cellars, there weren't anything like that, right? So they think to themselves, oh my goodness, we have a real crisis here, what are we going to do? And Mary thinks to herself, hmm, I know what we can do. Let me go talk to my boy, right? So what's so interesting here is that she goes to Jesus, right? So we don't know too much about Jesus' childhood. We get a little snippet into the fact that when he was a young man, he was in the temple and he was discussing the law with the scribes and with the elders and the teachers of the people. But besides from that, we don't know if he was performing miracles. In fact, I would guess the impression is that he grew up as a normal Jewish boy, the son of a Jewish carpenter. But this text says maybe Jesus was doing occasional miracle here or there because here comes mom kind of giving Jesus the look, the look. Hey, you remember that thing that you do for me and dad every once in a while? You remember? <laughs> I need you to multiply that a lot. Can you imagine this interchange? So Jesus, he hears his mother. And I, now I love this. And we can import a lot of our own cultural um, uh, ethnocentrism into this word, into this phrase. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, when we hear Jesus referred to as mom as woman, because we're so, quote unquote, enlightened and so tolerant today, right? We might think that's chauvinistic, hierarchical, and uh, very, very unflattering. But in fact, in the ancient Near East, it was a very complimentary way to talk to your mother. It's not derogatory. 
No, it's, uh, it shows delight. I mean, think of it even in other cultures, right? I mean, when you go to England, they will say, my lady. Or if you go to France, they'll say, madame. Even here, women that we respect, we say, ma'am, right? So in the ancient Near East, this was a perfectly appropriate way for Jesus to address his mom. I mean, think of it. Not only in John chapter 2, but in John chapter 19, Jesus will look at his mother. It's a different situation. Whereas wine is about to flow here in John chapter 2. In John chapter 19, it's Jesus' blood that is flowing. He's hanging from the cross, nails in his hands and in his feet, the crown of thorns pressed upon his brow. He looks down on his mother, the same mother that was there when he was born at Christmas. It says, woman, looks over to the Apostle John. Behold your son, son, behold your mother. While we have to, once again, be careful that we don't deify Mary, we have to be careful that we don't make Mary an object of our worship, she continues to be a great example of what it means to follow Christ. So she speaks out. She says, Jesus, can you perform this miracle? And then he says something very interesting. He says, my hour has not come. Now, does that mean that Jesus was planning on doing the miracle at 3 o'clock and now Mary, well, no, it's only 2 o'clock, so my hour's not come yet. Miracle time's at 3. <laughs> Is that what's going on here? No, in fact, when we walk through the Gospel of John, we're going to hear this over and over again. Why did Jesus escape the angry crowd? His hour has not come. Why is Jesus going to continue to say, my hour has not come? When he says, my hour has not come, what is the hour? The hour of his sacrifice. The hour of his death. Why are we talking about it so early in John chapter 2? Well, because here's the thing. You know this. If something bad happens at a wedding, all of a sudden people start talking. If something great happens at a wedding, all of a sudden people start talking. He knows full well he's about to perform nothing else than a pure, unadulterated miracle. Can't be explained. People are going to start to talk. So Jesus understands that as soon as he performs these miracles, his fame is going to spread. And with his fame will also accompany it the jealousy and the envy of the Pharisees, the jealousy and the envy of the religious elite. And as much as people are going to be fascinated by his miracles, his enemies are going to want to extinguish his life. So Jesus' primary purpose in coming what was Jesus' primary purpose for being born on Christmas? Why was Jesus born? To die, right? To die. You see, the reason Christmas happened was for Good Friday and Easter. So that Jesus, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, would take away not only the sins of the world, but take away my sin. You see, this is why Jesus came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That was his primary purpose but yes, secondary, he has Philip, he has Andrew, he has Peter, he has John, and they're all watching him. Jesus knows that he's going to use these men to change the world. He's going to be intentional to use these three years to disciple them, to pour into them. His hour has not yet come because while his primary purpose is the cross, 
It would seem his secondary purpose is to disciple the people. So what happens is Mary doesn't even follow up with a secondary question. Mary doesn't even prod some more. It's almost as if she knows, all right, Jesus, I get it. I understand. Yes, servants, please come over here. Do whatever he tells you. She just knows he's going to do something awesome, right? She expects it. Okay, so what's about to happen is all kinds of interesting. Not only are we going to see the molecules of H2O surrender to the word of Jesus Christ, but we got to wrestle with the fact that Jesus made a whole lot of good wine, too. Let's look at it, church. Here we go. Verse 6, all eyes back on the Bible. Now there were six stone water jars there for the... Now this is important. Underline this. The Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you... You have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What we see here is that Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Jesus is the one who is able to speak and to act and the entire molecular structure of the world can change. Even with a simple gesture, the biochemistry of water becomes wine. This is miraculous. This is astounding. This gives us a really big view of Jesus Christ. It helps us to understand that he truly is capable of doing what we are incapable of doing. But not only that, This is ripe with all kinds of important theological meaning. If you would turn back to the prophets, you would see that in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 3, verse 18, it speaks of the coming of God's kingdom, this glorious day where God was going to intervene for his people and usher in his kingdom. And we see in Joel 3, 18, in that day, the mountains will drip new wine. The hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. The invitation of the prophet Isaiah is this. You've heard me say this one over and over again. I love this. Isaiah 55, come. The invitation of the kingdom is come. Come all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why? Listen, why spend your money on what is not bread? Why? Why your labor on what does not satisfy? Isaiah says, listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. You see, in the Old Testament, wine was a sign of God's blessing. Wine was synonymous with joy. 
in both Old Testament and New, there are very clear, repeated, explicit warnings, in fact, commandments about drunkenness, about using wine or using alcohol, even as a way to find peace that only Christ, only God, only Yahweh could give, right? So with those clear outlined boundaries, we also want to celebrate that in the Old Testament, during the feasts, during the festivals, wine was a sign of God's joy, of his blessing. But here, I think there's also something deeper going on here. Because what Jesus does is he takes these empty mason jars, these huge 20, 30-gallon jars that are used for Jewish purification rites. And he uses them not only because of their function, but also because of their meaning. How many of us use hand sanitizer after every single handshake? <laughs> like every single time you go uh, out to eat, you're going to the bathroom, you're washing your hands, you don't even like being around people, much less touching them, right? In the ancient Near East, there, there was a direct correlation and connection between their physical cleanliness and their spiritual cleanliness. It wasn't just a matter of germophobia. It was truly part of their worship and preparation for a feast. So they would come into these big, like I said, 20, 30-gallon mason jars, and they would clean themselves up so well, it would probably put us to shame. They believed that this water was a purification sign about how Yahweh would purify themselves from their sins as they enjoy his blessings. Is it by accident that Jesus uses these jars, these empty vessels, to perform his miracle? No. Because what we're going to see, even as we come to the table, that Jesus purifies us from our sin. It is the blood of Christ that makes us whole and alive again. That it is the sacrifice of Christ that saves us not only saves us, though, satisfies us. So yes, the jar, the mason, the, the, the vessel is significant because Jesus is the one that's going to purify us. Jesus is the one that's going to save us. But the wine's significant too. Why? Because Jesus is the one, friends, friends, the only one who could satisfy us. The prophet Jeremiah put it like this. It's a strong word but it's a beautiful word. Be appalled at this, Jeremiah chapter two. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great heart, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They have forsaken me, and dug broken cisterns. Does that sound like us? Does that sound like our experience? That we often have a hard time trusting that the blessings that come from Christ are better and greater and more beautiful than any blessings the world may offer us? Yes. In fact, this is the same story that's playing itself out over and over again. We not only learn about how Jesus satisfies us at the wedding of Cana, we learn about our dissatisfaction with God at the wedding in Genesis, our first parents. 
Friends, think of it. Adam and Eve, our first parents, had everything and anything that not only they could ever possibly want, but that we could want. Think of it this way. Ready? There is no amount of money. There's no amount of power. There's no amount of comfort or prestige that you could accumulate in this broken, fallen world that Adam and Eve didn't enjoy before the fall. Literally, you could be the most powerful, richest, popular person on planet Earth, and you won't even get a taste of what they enjoyed in paradise. And yet what? They were dissatisfied. When they saw these forbidden fruit, was it the fruit that looked enticing, or was it the fact that it was forbidden that led them to sin? You see, they had all the fruit they could need. They had all the food that they could ever want. No, it was the fact that this fruit, this food, represented something that they thought could fill their deepest needs, their deepest longings. So even though they had fruit all over the place, they had food all over the place, when they saw this, this one thing, they didn't just crave food. What did they crave, friends? The knowledge of good and evil. They didn't want just good food. Friends, the Bible says they wanted to be God. How many of us, as if it's a constant cycle, a constant merry-go-round of trying to trust God with our desires, but oftentimes our desires get the best of us? Friends, how many of us know that you could have a full glass of cold, crisp water and still be very, very thirsty? How many of us know that you could enjoy the most delicious, succulent meal at your favorite restaurant and fill your belly to the brim and still be racked with hunger? How many of us know that you could get a solid 11 hours of sleep and still wake up tired? How many of us know that you could have a pretty good life? I mean, you could have a pretty good thing going on, right? I mean, like, all right, kids are healthy, marriage is okay, job's good, right? I live in a great town, great country. Things could be okay, but you still don't have peace. You see, what happened with Adam and Eve is they wanted not just the fruit, they wanted what was forbidden because in their hearts, their desires got the best of them. I heard a story, and you can go ahead and read it. I think it's still on the New York Post website, about a man down in Florida. His name is Michael Casey Lewis, 34 years old, and he was in jail for theft. He was in jail for robbery, and this man just got out of jail a couple days ago. He got out of jail for stealing. And you would think, all right, man, he's turning over a new leaf. He's going to go live different. He's going to go be different. And sure enough, as he's walking out of the, the police precinct, as he's leaving the jail, he sees a window open in one of the cars. He sees an iPhone, $547 of cash, and two packs of cigarettes. He's like, oh, I'm just going to take these for myself. He gets arrested before he even leaves the parking lot. Even as he's leaving the prison, even as he's walking off the jail, he doesn't even leave the premises without getting arrested again and thrown back in jail. You see, what our first parents did is they forsook 
paradise for a prison because their desires got the best of them. They were looking for a broken cistern to fill what only God could fill. It's that beautiful imagery that Blaise Pascal says. We all have this God-shaped vacuum in our hearts, right? We try to fill it with food. We try to fill it with fun. We try to fill it with sex. We try to fill it with success. It's not enough. I guess I just need more. It's not enough. I better get, keep going. It's not enough. I better work harder. This restlessness was only meant to find its rest in Christ. This restlessness can only find its peace in Christ. So here's the truth, folks. Even as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, even as we understand the significance of the cup, the problem is not that we are too thirsty, right? How many of us know the slogan, obey your thirst? What soda is that? Sprite. How many of us know the slogan for Snickers? Satisfy the hunger. You ever see that Dos Equis commercial? The most interesting man alive? Stay thirsty, my friends. The most interesting man alive is not the Dos Equis man. It's Jesus Christ. He's the master of the banquet. And here's the thing. You will remain thirsty. You will obey your thirst. You will look to satisfy your hunger. But the issue is that we're not thirsty or hungry too much. Friends, this is so important. Ready? This is it. Ready? It's not that we're too hungry, too thirsty. It's that we're not thirsty enough. It's that we're not hungry enough. You see, the issue is that we settle. The issue is that we settle from scraps from Satan's table when Christ Jesus offers inestimable joy. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. It's from his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud piles in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. You see, C.S. Lewis says, we're far too easily pleased. So is this passage about wine? Is this passage only about a wedding? No. This is about how Jesus Christ will take the cup of God's wrath and drink every last drop of it. Out of a desire to obey and glorify his Father, Jesus will drink the cup of God's wrath to its last drop out of love for his children, for those who will call upon his name. But not only that, these mason jars are filled to the brim. You see, Jesus can do more as Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, immeasurably more, abundantly more than we think or imagine. Jesus comes to give life and he gives it to the full. I like how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, when you are told to believe in Jesus, listen, friends, believe in Jesus up to the brim. When you're told to love Jesus, love Jesus up to the brim. When you're commanded to serve Jesus, serve Jesus up to the brim. As we prepare our hearts to come to the table, 
Let us remember the significance of the imagery. Let us remember what Jesus achieved, what Jesus accomplished, and also the significance of the cup of his blood. Many of us are familiar with the Passover. Many of us are familiar with the steps of that beautiful meal of Jesus' Last Supper. Not many of us know that at that time, there was probably four different cups. The first cup was the uh, cup of sanctification. The second cup was the cup reminding them of the signs and the plagues on Egypt. The third cup, which many scholars believe, is the cup that Jesus rose at the Last Supper, is the cup of redemption. But there's a fourth cup coming. You see, Jesus said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine anew with you until I drink it in heaven. That's the cup of praise. You see, it's at this time when we come to the table that we remember Jesus drank deep of God's wrath so that we could be forgiven. We remember that Jesus is the one who redeemed us. But we also, as we're about to hear, look forward to the day where sin is defeated, where Satan is overthrown, and death has finally died. There's one more cup waiting for you. There's one more cup. Jesus himself will drink with you. It's the cup of praise that we will enjoy with all of God's people forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, and as if we remember the sign of the wedding of Cana, I pray, Lord, that we would realize that this is a sign pointing to the cross, that this sign points to Jesus, his broken body, Jesus, his blood that was shed, Jesus, his sacrifice and atoning work so that he would reconcile sinners back to a holy God and make enemies into friends, make those dead in sin alive forevermore. So, Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to convict us now, to lead us now, to guide us now, and help us repent Help us to turn from our half-hearted pleasures, turn from our idols and our sin, and return to the spring of living water. Return to the Savior who gives life and grace to the brim for all who believe. God, we pray that you would forgive us. God, I also pray that you would fill us with a passion to know you and to love you and to follow you every day of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you catch that? Right now we're drinking the cup of redemption. One day when he comes again.